We are the First John Sisterhood. We share a special bond because we memorize the entire book of First John during our Wednesday morning revive sessions here at church. As we recite 1 John 1, verse, uh, 1 John 2, verse 28 to 3, verse 10, we'll use the 1 John word quilt, just like we do in class, to guide us. And now, dear children, continue in him, so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, Sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do, Do not, not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's works. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. Thank you. That was awesome. I, uh, in, in many ways, I feel like I don't really have much else to say after that. That was, that was it. That's why we're here today. 
Uh, good morning. If we have not met, my name is Nathan. I am one of the pastors here, and it is my privilege today to be journeying through 1 John chapter 2, verse 28 to chapter 3, verse 10. Before we begin, though, let me just note this. We are living, in many ways, in the healthiest and the wealthiest era ever. In terms of health, our life expectancy is greater than ever before. In terms of wealth, this does not mean that people do not live in poverty. This does not mean that we struggle, whether through housing crises or different situations, through poverty lines. It just means that we have access to more resources. Even if you are below the poverty line, you still have likely in your fingertips, not always, but likely in your fingertips, access to more information than pretty much any other generation in human history would have even been able to imagine. We are in the healthiest and wealthiest generation ever. And yet, there's still something that feels off. In the words of the theologian Carl Truman, he says this, yes, we are wealthier and healthier than our ancestors in the 16th and even the mid-20th centuries. But we do not know who we are anymore. As we accumulate more things, as our life expectancy increases, instead we are now caught up in a matrix of questioning who we are and wondering how should we understand ourselves. It's a question of identity. On the one hand, this happens on a big, general, broad level through major conversations happening in our day around gender and sexuality and around race and ethnicity. That's true. It, also happens on a personal level of us starting to define ourselves based on our intelligence, based on our career path, based on our level of emotional intelligence, based on our extroversion or introversion. We are consumed with defining ourselves and our identity. This also happens seasonally. You can go through being an adolescent and all the different realities of being a student, going through middle school, going through high school, etc. You graduate. All of a sudden now you are in post-secondary or you're working and you start to define yourself by that season. Maybe you get married. You have a different type of identity that you take on. Maybe you don't. And in fact, you probably feel that sense of identity even more strongly if you are a single. You have kids. That starts to define who you are. Your kids grow up. They leave the house. You become an empty nester. That's another season of life you go through. Eventually, you might have some grandkids. Now your role, your identity is wrapped up in being the best grandma or grandpa you can be. Eventually, your grandkids start to get too old for you. They don't think you're cool anymore. And so you don't, spend, you don't get to spend as much time. And then you start to feel a loss of identity once again. Maybe you've retired. You spent so so much of your life defining yourself by your career that now that you've retired, you don't have a sense of self left. Ours is a day that is consumed with the idea of identity. Today we come to a passage, passage that speaks just to that. Chapter 2, verse 28. And now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him, that is, before Jesus, at his coming. 
It's a question of confidence and being unashamed. This is John's goal. Whatever else we are trying to go through is about trying to achieve this confidence and being unashamed before the king of the universe. Both of those are identity realities. Do you have a secure enough sense of self? Do you feel ashamed of who you are or do you feel confident in who you are, whether standing before anybody, but particularly before the king of all creation? There's something about this passage that deeply resonates with where we are. So it's to that end, we dig in and see what it is that John has to teach us about a moment where we all are all grasping for a sense of understanding who we are in our day. So read with me, 1 John chapter 2, starting at verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. I just want to make an important note of clarification as we jump into this message, learning about our identity and who we are and who we've been created to be. Sometimes there's a tendency to think that when the reality of Jesus matches up with something that deeply resonates with our cultural moment, it's just because we're picking it from the outside and pulling it into the story of Jesus. If you think of a Thanksgiving dinner, it's almost like we would treat identity in this situation as if it's that like weird side dish that no one really wants, but you get really excited about when the one person comes who is actually interested in the green jelly and marshmallow dish. You know that one? The weird dish? I like... I am not going to be interested in eating, no matter how good you claim your green jello and marshmallow mess is, I am not eating it. But when the person comes who's interested in that, by all means, take it. It'd be tempting to think of identity in that type of way, as if just because we right now are really interested in understanding the question of who we are, that we talk about identity. But what we see here and consistent throughout Scripture is that identity is not some sort of secondary issue. It's actually the primary thing. It's the turkey. It's the mashed potatoes and gravy. It's the heart of the meal. In the passage we just read, we get to see John Wright. He has to pause and remember, see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. He then goes on, verse 2, Dear friends, now we are children of God. He talks about how this has already happened. In fact, the very first thing that happens when you commit to following Jesus is that you are given a new identity. It's the starting place. It also looks like it's the end place, according to John as well. Read on in verse 2. But we know, sorry, dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. 
the great hope for those who follow Jesus, and it's not just that he died and resurrected 2,000 years ago, but that that is an indication of the fact of one day he will return to finish what he has started, and the climax of human history will reach its point where all suffering disappears, all injustice disappears, all oppression disappears, all pain and sin disappear, and we shall be like him. Once again, the final hope, just as it was in the beginning, the final hope comes to identity. In other words, when we think about what it means to follow Jesus and being transformed in his image, the discipleship pathway, our transformation begins and ends with our identity. It's the starting point and it's where we end up. This is not some secondary issue. This is the heart of what Jesus has come to do and what he will complete. Our challenge is that we live in a day that really struggles to believe this. Imagine that God is thinking of you. How do you think he feels when you come to mind? It's the first emotion that God has as he thinks of you and your life. This is a question posed by the psychologist turned spiritual director named David Benner. And in his experience, he finds that almost everyone has some sense of God's disappointment. That's their sense of how God feels about them. What John is saying and stopping on, you see in verse 29, he says, everyone who does what is right has been born of him. And then he just like stops and gets caught up in worship. You need to see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. Do not let your familiarity with that phrase allow it to numb yourself to the fact that you are a child of God. Your lineage goes back to him. I think we often gloss over this fact of the fact that our our identity is wrapped up in God's, that he's staked his name on us. It can be hard to conceive, like, if you're not someone who's following Jesus, it can be hard to conceive of the fact that I'm going to commit myself to following him. That is a difficult step as a human to go to following a creator. Just think about the step that God makes of identifying with humans and calling them his children, of staking his name on us. Set aside even all the realities that comes with of our own sinfulness for a second, of our own anger, our own pride, our own selfishness. Just think about how weird you are and the fact that God identifies himself with you. I just think for myself, I'm, I'm pretty weird. I don't know how to drink water. You can ask my wife. I genuinely, like two out of three times, if I'm drinking a cup of water, I will start choking or dribbling it out of my mouth. Like, I... I think I missed the class in, in elementary school of how to drink a cup of water. I don't know what, what went wrong. I think, like, if I'm eating pancakes, it doesn't matter how many placemats I've got around me. There will always be syrup stuck on the table somewhere. <laughs> I have the same stain on every single pair of pants. It is right there. It's the right leg inside thigh. I spill every single time, same place. This is just me when it comes to eating food. And God has chosen to call me his child. Everything I do, he staked his name on me. What kind of a love is that? That we should be called children of God. Now, I just want you to know as well that if this is not, if you are not currently following Jesus, 
there's actually not like more steps or more work you would have to do in order to receive this identity. John says in verse, verse 1, end of it, the reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. He talks about how there's some type of unintelligible reality about those who follow Jesus and also God himself. There's something that doesn't make sense for those who, for those who are outside the current boundaries of the church. It's a passage on identity. So somehow the thing that does not make sense is how the story of Jesus speaks to identity. And we're going to find that here as we jump into verse 3. It says this, All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. And in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Remember, this comes in a passage where John's goal is that we would be confident and unashamed before the king of the universe. The challenge is that for many of us, it does not feel like these four verses are accomplishing that thing. Verse 3, all who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. Many of us feel the struggles with language around purity. If you are familiar with the phrase purity culture, it's a sense of resistance to ideas within the Christian community in particular, and particularly around Christian visions of sexuality, where you would have to maintain a certain type of purity in your sex life in order to be considered pure. And that is recognized as a source of deep shame and insecurity for many. It's not the pathway to being confident and unashamed before God. We come to verse 4 and 5. Anyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appears that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. We talk about this reality of sin. In fact, we have some common phrases that we might use to describe sin. We might talk about how we want to love the sinner but hate the sin. And the idea there is good and right. It's talking about how our posture of love is always towards people and that we also want to step aside and say, no, we reject those things which are not of God. We want to be a holy people, a set-apart people. But even in that, you just hear the reality of I'm still being called a sinner. That means there's something deeply wrong with me. This is not the place of being confident and unashamed. Verse 6, no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. I was talking with someone who said that as he read these verses, and maybe even this one in particular, there was just a sense of wondering, have I done enough? No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. What if I haven't done enough? In some ways, that's a pretty good working definition of insecurity. Wondering whether or not you've done enough. Whether, wondering whether or not you've measured up. So how is it that John could just move from this grand vision of our identity in Jesus and then also plunge us into insecurity and shame? I think it's because we've actually misread what he's saying here. Come back again to verse 3. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. The messaging of purity culture is that you would live a certain way, a pure lifestyle, so that you would be accepted by God. The message in verse 3 has a different starting point. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. And just a note here, John is probably 
also including our area of sex and sexuality, but he's certainly not exclusively leading to that. But his main point is this. If you are trying to purify yourself out of anything besides hope in the living God, it's going to lead to death. But if you're trying to purify yourself out of hope in the living God who's already declared you to be his child and is going to bring that to completion when Jesus returns, there's a wildly different amount of power that comes with that. In verse 4, we talk about sin, the reality of sin. John's point in verse 4 and 5 is actually just that Jesus has been the one to take away our sin. Not actually what we've done to take it away ourselves. In fact, his point is that we have not been able to do it. He already said that in chapter 2, chapter 1 and 2, that we need to confess our sins, come to the one who is our advocate. You can't do it on your own. And then in verse 6, I think it just says it so well. Read his first sentence. No one who lives in him keeps on, keeps on sinning. He starts with an identity statement, and then he goes to a behavior statement. And then the next sentence, it gets switched. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. He goes from a behavior statement to an identity statement. And this is the great piece that is unintelligible about the story of Jesus. It's this. It's the claim that our identity determines our behavior. The late Tim Keller, I think, talked about this better than anyone. He said that the story of Jesus is the only story on earth where identity is not something that we achieve, it's something we simply receive. That the math of the good news of Jesus is not what you do is who you are, but it's flipped, and it's that who you are is how you do. That it starts with your identity. When I was in middle school, I was asked by our shop teacher to join our cardboard boat race team. Yes, you heard me correctly. A cardboard boat race team. There were four of us. We had three sheets of cardboard, about eight feet by four feet each. We had some packing tape and some X-Acto knives. And we had about an hour or two in order to build a boat. And then we'd have one of our team members race it across an Olympic swimming pool and back. And then all four of us had to get into the boat. And the competition was, one, how fast does your racer go? And two, how long do your does your team actually get to sit in the boat? Obviously not very long. It's made out of cardboard. But the race, like the whole competition, you could figure out what was about to happen in the first two seconds. The moment that someone steps in their boat, if it starts sinking, it doesn't matter how hard the person paddled. Some teams would like take, they would cut out like circles and then tape it to their hands to try and get like more paddles. It did not matter. Their boat was not going anywhere. But the boats that actually like, were structurally sound were able to keep paddling all the way there and back and then have their team sit in the boat. Some of them lasted for a couple minutes, just cardboard in water. See, the reality is many of us think, okay, listen, I'm wanting to be a better dad. I'm wanting to be a better employee. I'm wanting to have a stronger sense of self and security. And our temptation is to just say, in order to achieve that, I'm just going to try harder and put in more work. That's how most of life works. 
If you want to be an engineer, what do you have to do? You put in the work. If you want to be a professional athlete, what do you do? You put in the work. If you want to be a good dad, what do you do? It's not going to happen on its own. You have to put in the work. Every other area of life is defined by us having to put in work in order to achieve success. But the reality of this particular story, of the one who died and rose again, is that our starting place has to be different. You can paddle all you want, but if you have a soggy ship, you're not going anywhere. You can try and you can try and you can try, but what you need to do is you need to return actually to your identity, to the vessel, and then out of that, you can paddle up the stream, up the Olympic swimming pool, whatever it is. So the question is, how do you do that? How do you not just say, I want to be stuck trying harder? How do you not just like clench your fists? How do you actually receive the good news and live in light of that? Well, I think we go back to what John has already said, chapter 3, verse 1. This is his command, his imperative. Stop and see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. In fact, both at the beginning and at the end, when John is talking about our identity and how it was transformed already and it's going to be transformed later on, he's going to come to this word, seeing. Chapter 3, verse 1, see what great love. And then later on in, chapter t- or in verse 2, he says, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him. Our identity is going to come to its fullest conclusion because we shall see him as he is. John attaches our identity and our attention, our ability to have a vision of who God is and his love for us. I got an experience of this on Thursday. We have a number of people in our church who wrote an album based on Exodus 34. They uh, spent the last couple of years writing it. Exodus 34 is where God declares his identity to Moses, the Lord, the Lord, a God gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Being there on Thursday night was for me probably one of the most profound encounters with Jesus I've had in like three or four years. I didn't go in expecting anything. I was there, I was helping out at the donation table, I walked in a little bit late, and I was just caught up in a vision of who God is. Not that tears are always the perfect marker of figuring out whether or not the Spirit is at work, but I was weeping through every single song. I wasn't coming in with a particular burden or baggage, I was just caught up in a vision of this God and his love for us. One song in particular that hit me the most, and I don't, know, I don't know where this came from, but it was just the chorus of the song, Gift of Grace, the second chorus of just a declaration, I receive. I receive. And what happened is that as my attention was directed towards God and his love, as I saw that vision, my sense of self became more secure. See, our identity is wrapped up in our worship. And if you want to know what you worship, it's just simply what you give your attention to. If you you want to know where your identity is found, just check out where you're looking. What are you giving your attention to? If your attention is devoted to your sport, to your career, even to your family, that's where your identity is found. If your identity is devoted to, or if your attention is devoted to God, 
then your identity is rooted there as well. And that's where we find our stable, secure sense of self, the ability to be confident and unashamed before God. And in that is also power too, the ability to live differently. Now, there is someone out there who would not like this reality to come in the clear. So read with me in verse 7. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they've been born of God. It's the identity that determines our behavior. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. I mentioned earlier that we struggle to understand the idea of sin. We resist it. We oppose it. It's unfamiliar. But when we talk about the devil, I think we just feel clueless in general. Our general image of the devil is a red-horned figure with a tail, right? We use phrases to describe brownies as devilishly good, which just means they're really, really good. How are we to understand this key figure in the story of Scripture? It's a famous quote from C.S. Lewis that I think can be helpful as a launching point. He says this, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils or the demons. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. Maybe in certain seasons of history or of your own life, it's been the unhealthy and excessive interest, whether through fear, whether through extended curiosity. This can be a little bit true in certain types of spiritualities that just want to explore demonic and dark forces. But I think in general, in the Western world at least, this might not be as true in other continents, but in the Western world, our tendency is to disbelieve in their existence or at least implicitly to do so. We don't tend to think a lot about Satan, about the devil. He doesn't come to mind very frequently. Nor should we also be consumed either. So the question is, how do we have an appropriate understanding of this enemy throughout scripture. Well, probably the best thing to do is to look at how scripture talks about him, right? That seems fair. That seems very fair. The first thing that we read here in this passage is, dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. This is the launch pad into talking about the devil. The devil's tactic is going to be to do whatever he can to lead us into sin. John's already defined sin as the rejection of God's law. Wants to do whatever he can to get us to resist God. And here we have two strategies on display. The first one, as we see in verse 7, dear children, do not, lead, do not let anyone lead you astray. The first one we see is that the devil's strategy is deceit. It's about planting in a certain type of idea that this is the devil's methodology, if you will, is a certain type of idea that we become fixated on that is going to lead us to live in a certain way. Now, at this point, you should be, if you are familiar with Scripture, which if you're not familiar with Scripture, that is fine. You are so welcome here, regardless of where you're coming from. But if you are familiar with this story, you should be having some 
images, a particular story coming to mind about this key adversary that is using deceit as his tactic to lead people into sin. If you want it to be more explicit that John is talking about this particular place, Genesis 3 is what I'm referring to, the beginning, read verse 8. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning, that is, the devil has been rejecting God's law from the beginning, from the very start. John has in his mind Genesis 3. Now, anytime that a biblical author has a certain portion of Scripture in mind, we should also go there, too. So, if you have a Bible, you could do this fancy thing where you could flip to Genesis 3 and then hold your finger there. The rest of you pagans who just use your phones, pardon me, you people who just use your phones, you're out of luck. We're going to be in Genesis 3 for a little bit, and then we'll flip back to 1 John. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. The serpents in this story being the Satan or the devil. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. And then here's the deceit. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, again, on the one hand, it's just an image of getting to see the deceit. But I also want you to see specifically how that first lie began. We've talked already that the story of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is based on our identity determining our behavior, and that everything else operates in the opposite direction, that our behavior would be where we find our identity. The story of Genesis begins in Genesis chapter 1 with God creating humanity, and before they've done a single thing, he just declares them to be made in his image, after his own likeness. He declares this identity statement, and then he commissions them into being fruitful and multiply and filling the earth and doing it and stewarding the earth. All these things come after their identity statement. Look at the deceit of the serpent here. God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. When you take this action, when you take it upon yourself, when you grasp after the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then you, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. There's the deceit. Your behavior will determine your identity. It's from the very beginning. The second strategy is just a more specific version of the first. We would be deceived, but specifically, we would be deceived by being given false identities. So the question for us today is simply this. How do I recognize the false identities I've been given? How do I recognize the deceit of the enemy? Back in 1 John, when we started this passage on the devil, Uh, 1 John chapter 3, verse 7, we have this phrase, do not let anyone lead you astray. It's the same phrase that John used in chapter 2, verse 26 to describe the Antichrist. Do not let anyone lead you astray. 
These antichrists were, as we understand them, not people who would have like public, publicly proclaimed that they were children of the devil, as John was saying. No, they were people who were proclaiming that theirs was the story, the best understanding of what Jesus had done. But that didn't change the fact that there was a deception at work. So how do we go about this? I'm reminded of a time when I was in my first year at Briarcrest wrestling with who I was and my identity. Man, I felt like I was failing as an athlete. I felt like I was absent as a son and distant as a brother. I was indifferent as a student. I was confused as a man, just as a human. I didn't understand who I was or what I was supposed to be doing. I know this because one of my assignments for my English professor, I actually wrote all this out, and it took her a year and a half to give it back to me because she just said, Nathan, I don't know what to do with this raw processing. This is, a, this is a, an assignment, a school assignment. You're not supposed to <laughs> tell me about why you liked this book. Like, what are you doing here? It was all contained in there. And I went back to it, and I, the, the reflection was the first half dealing with these things, and the second half was wrestling with who am I now? How do I understand myself? The solution was not try harder as an athlete, try harder as a student, try harder as a son and as a brother and as a friend. The solution was none of those things. But for many of them, that did end up happening. Now, the solution was, once again, see what great love the, fa- the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. See, what ended up happening throughout the course of that year is I just learned what it looked like to worship God in community and to seek him and to have my attention focused on him. And as that happened, all of a sudden my identity became secure. And I got to experience exactly what John says, which is that if you are righteous, if you know that he is righteous, anyone who does what is right has been born of him. I got to experience the genuine power that comes from an identity that is secure in my father. I was able to actually re-engage in my relationships with my family that I cut myself off from. I was able to actually find life in my academics. I did stop playing basketball, but my coach now became my boss, Rod, so I kind of still got to be involved in that way anyways. And he was probably okay that I stopped playing basketball because I was a bit of a punk too. So I apologize, Rod, for all those years of suffering. Good to be back with you. And also, this is my final thing that I just want to say, the, the ability to be secure in this identity and to recognize, this is important, to recognize who the key adversary was allowed me to figure out where to channel all the angst that often comes when we focus on our identities. Final point is this. The devil is our key adversary. In brackets is the word Satan. We've anglicized that to Satan. Satan just in Hebrew means adversary. That's all it means. The reason I bring this up as our final point is because what often happens is that when you feel really strongly about your identity, you also feel really strongly about the boundaries you put up. Part of this is healthy. If you're a mom and you understand yourself to be a mom as part of who you are and someone comes against your child, you should go into bear mode. You should protect your child. The problem is, what if, if our identity is incredibly secure in Jesus, does this just mean that we exclude and we put up the boundaries and the walls for all those who do not claim faith in Jesus? And the answer is a resounding no. See, in our distance and ability of under, of, and lack of understanding of who the devil is, who the adversary truly is, our enemy often becomes other people who disagree with us. But what we see here in 1 John, read verse 8, 
The reason the Son of God appeared, the reason Jesus appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. That is where his exclusionary practices came, was the spiritual forces of evil. We read in Ephesians. I should have tabbed this one after I made fun of all you people about not having a Bible. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Do not confuse your adversary with other humans you disagree with. Be Be secure in your identity, but recognize that all of John's talk about identity, all of John's talk about the devil, leads him to say in verse 10, anyone who does, what is, who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. If this does not lead you into love, you have not understood the gospel. So that's where we lead off. Please pray with me. And Father, we love you and we worship you. We just declare you to be good and righteous And as we focus our eyes on you, we know that this is the place where our identity becomes secure in you, that in that, in receiving what you have already done, we become confident and unashamed before you. So help us to do that more and more every single day. Pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. At this point, we're going to invite our prayer teams forward. Just a couple of things. As always, please come and receive prayer for any reason whatsoever, but just a few specific encouragements. Uh, If you are someone who you have not received this identity, if you have not claimed faith in Jesus and received the identity of being a child of God, a really practical way to do that is just to come and receive prayer. Just as a side celebration note, we've had multiple stories in the last few months of people coming and receiving prayer that they would accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior in new life. Like, yeah, for sure. Like, that is incredibly exciting. And we also know that that doesn't exclusively happen here on a Sunday morning. We just want to take a moment to celebrate that that has been happening. So if that's you, please come and receive prayer. And secondly, if you just feel like you're in a situation where the words confident and unashamed would not define you, please come and receive prayer. This is actually God's intention for you. Thanks.